Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Mike Lefevre. Mike currently serves as CEO for Concentric Advisors, a risk management consultancy that specializes in delivering strategic security and intelligence services. Previously, Mike was the COO for IOMAXIS, where his leadership was instrumental in growing and scaling the company, which more than doubled in revenue and profit in the three years under his stewardship. Mike retired from the US Navy after 38 years of service, finishing his military career as the Director of Strategic Operational Planning at the National Counterterrorism Center within the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. He also served as both the commander of the Office of Defense Representative in Pakistan and the commander of the Joint Task Force in Pakistan, leading all U.S. Armed Forces in Pakistan between 2008 and 2011. Throughout his career, Mike served in Navy and Joint Leadership and Command positions at every level. He led disaster relief and humanitarian efforts the full spectrum of warfare operations and counterterrorism and counterinsurgency operations. He's renowned for his effectiveness in navigating cross-cultural, complex, and international environments, building and promoting lasting partnerships. Mike is focused on the intersection of risk, leadership, and technology. Welcome, Mike. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks so much. You're welcome. You know, it's so funny is I have friends that work at Microsoft and I'm like all of the acronyms and all the titles and language. <laughs> Same thing with the military and, and yeah. like the Navy. I'm like reading your stuff. And I'm like, there's so many different groups and they, they mean something, I'm sure, to all the people you meet who have served. But for the, for the layman like me, I'm like, what are these groups and how many have you been in? <laughs> they do have one common theme, though, like, like serious, like front lines baller status that's what i know <laughs> yeah i think every every organization every every tribe has its own culture its own language and so yeah, yeah it's, it's you'll have to you have to give me the like cliff notes version i want to learn everything because okay. I, I don't have as much exposure obviously as as you and as some people who have family members who have been yeah. um who yeah. have served so okay i'm going to start with rapid fire all righty um are you an introvert or an extrovert extrovert yeah i was gonna say for sure extrovert <laughs> You're like me. We're like, bing, 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 bing. Bing, bing, bing. Off the scale. When <laughs> they the line you up on those Myers-Briggs, I'm on the, yeah. always at the end of the line. Yeah, so am I. Okay, got it. Um, what is a material item that you would run back to save in a fire? Oh, wow. That's a hard one, right? That is. Because you kind of go, you know, we have, we have, you know, like the special box with all the special documents in it and all that kind of stuff. Um that's important to have. I don't have that. I want a special box. Yeah, it is. It's kind of fireproof and something. I think we bought it at Home Depot or something. And so you can put all your special papers in it. It really means something to you because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, a lot of the stuff, as long as you save other people's lives or whatever, it's, you know, replaceable. Yeah. Yeah, it is. 
Yeah. So, and nowadays with digital, you know, like camera, we can save all of our photos and stuff. Yeah, which is so really nice. I'm going to get one of those, those boxes. We'll talk, okay. off, we'll talk offline on that. All right, um, cool. What is the scariest thing that you have ever done? <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> where do I begin? Yeah, there's a couple, couple different uh, experiences in the Navy and training and then, you know, real life that you kind of, wow, this was uh this was a different environment. Uh, probably some of the things were, you know, over the war zones in Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, traveling around in the areas and working with, with some folks. Um, you, you find yourself in, in very uh, uncertain, unpredictable environments uh, that, you know, it's, it's your awareness is really keen and you're kind of like, Ooh, this is different. Yeah. You know? Do you like that? Do you like that? Um, like that adrenaline rush? I do like the idea, or you get used to it. I don't know whether you like it. Do you ever really love it? Uh, there is a sense of, you know, when you you have some ambiguity and uncertainty, and then some people, you know, can really, you know, thrive in that environment, like in the chaos of the moment or whatever. And then there's some that don't. I I kind of find that oh, I, I'm okay dealing with it. Maybe it's because you know I dealt with it with so much. You know, it kind of go back to the yeah. foundation pieces, but then, you know, when you're dealt with these, you know, extreme different issues or things that you kind of go, wow, where did that one come from? <laughs> yeah. And you're like, and then you look back and you're like, I can't believe I just went through that. Yeah, That's crazy. exactly. Um, yeah. What, this is one that um, I'm just curious, what would the three words be that your family members would use to describe you? Um, happy, uh, easygoing, um, Boy, the third one would be a tough one. Hopefully it would be, you know, kind of a, a whatever, loving father or loving grandfather. Yeah. You know, those, those types of things. Nurturing or loving. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Yeah. Um, what trait do you feel is most necessary um, to make someone successful as a leader in the military? Uh, it's uh, relationships. Um, developing relationships because it develops a trust. Uh, I, I used to say my command philosophy for all these, I was blessed with all these different commands I had, but I said, hey, the top three priorities are relationships, relationships, relationships. Mm. You can have them in any order, but those are the top three because it is so powerful to develop that relationship with somebody, to develop that trust, and it endures a lot to be able to build on. Yeah, it's funny because the older I get, the more I'm realizing that no matter what industry um, or even what role it's so crucial that you're able to build trust and build relationships yeah. it, it helps with being able to persuade and influence and get kind of ultimately what you need to accomplish done yeah I yeah. think that's a tenet of success because without yeah. it you know you, you can do a lot of things transactional by transactional but it doesn't have the same meaning yeah uh, that when you make that connection you're good for your word you're you Get, build that trust and that relationship that uh, endures even strains, you know, in some of the environments that we're in. Yeah. Um, okay. So what have you recently read or listened to or seen that had any sort of significant impact on you that kind of stayed with you? Uh, I, I really love the leadership uh, genre. So, you know, I mean, in the past, Team of Teams, Team of Rivals, which is kind of an interesting book. I do listen to various podcasts that uh, in a lot of ways about national security or about leadership or about uh, high performance mm -hmm. really are the ones that excite me the most. 
Yeah. Um, those ones are always really good. And I ask it a lot in the podcast and then I get suggestions and then I write it down and then I'm like, I'm so overwhelmed. There's too much to do. Um, okay. This one's an easy one, but I'm just curious because I never have asked it. I don't think in the rapid fire, but, um, but it's my, it's my weakness. So I'm curious what your favorite candy is that you're going to get at the, at the movies. Oh, Reese's peanut butter cups. Oh, that's my husband's too. Yeah. And do, do you have them at home right now? Oh yeah. And are they in the freezer? Uh, no, they're in a jar above, uh, up above, so I can't reach them all the time. <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. Are you one of those people who can allow yourself just one? Yeah, I can. Oh, God. Yeah, of yeah. course. You're disciplined. <laughs> <laughs> I love Reese's. Good call. Yeah. Um, okay, so tell me about you as a kid. Like, where are you from? Where, where were you raised? Oh, wow. Uh, born in York, Pennsylvania, of all things. Um, mm. Lived there for a couple years. Um, and then moved to Allentown, Bethlehem area of Northeast mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, and then moved to Southern New Jersey uh, for my high school years, and then ended up at the Naval Academy. And part how did you end move, up moving around so much? Yeah, part of the move was I was a popular kid. My dad worked for Hershey's Ice Cream Company. <laughs> and so, I, so after all the whatever, the T-balls, the, you know, the Frisbees or whatever you were doing, or bike riding, everybody would come over to our house, and we'd have a freezer in the basement filled with popsicles and ice cream stuff. So he was a branch manager that just happened to get moved around. And so that was some of the movement yeah. before head to the Naval Academy. And how did you end up even knowing about or taking interest in the Naval Academy? Like, you know, <laughs> did the, the high school counselor tell you about it or did somebody come recruit out of your high school? How did you even know? Yeah, this is really a dumb luck. It was kind of, I was a wrestler in, in Pennsylvania in the area I was in. It was a big wrestling. And when I went to New Jersey, you know, I'd go to these summer camps. Well, one of the summer camps I went to up in upstate New York, the head of the Navy wrestling team was there, an All-American, Ed Perry. And uh, I guess he, he saw something in me that, and said, hey, did you ever think about the Naval Academy? Well, my dad was, you know, one of these kids at 17, his parents signed for him to, to be, you know, enlist in the Navy and go to World War II and was out in the Pacific. But, you know, rest of the family, you know, had, had different services. But uh, I said, hey, this is kind of cool. Went and visited, started filling out forms, fell in love with it. And before I knew it, it was like, uh, here's your package. Welcome. Wow. Uh, where, where is it exactly? In Annapolis, Maryland. In oh, that's why I knew that. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful area. And do they? Did you wrestle there? Yeah, I did. I wrestled three oh, years there. Last year, I said, like, okay, enough of losing weight. Cut yeah. weight. <laughs> it's so funny. I was a, um, I was a college athlete and and um, also a cheerleader in high school. And when I have to cheer for wrestling, I would just like kind of gross out. I got to be honest. And like those mats were just like nasty. And my brother <laughs> and a few friends wrestled, and they'd wear their big like outfits to try to sweat and spit in the cup. The whole oh yeah. Thing. What wrestle? What weight class were you? Oh, well, a weight class I probably wouldn't see unless I was in like a camp somewhere, but it was like 126 pounds. <laughs> oh my goodness. I yeah. think I was that in like fourth grade. I think I said, <laughs> oh my God, that was like no eating allowed. No, it was peanut butter cups for you. Yeah, no, not for that one. Yeah, yeah it was a, it was tough. You know, during the winter time, of course, it starts in October yeah. and around March, and then then we try to do so. You know, kind of freestyle, so you let your weight kind of grow up and and have yeah. fun to be able to yeah. practice. But well, yeah, the weight cutting. You can take anybody out now. I used to, I'm sure you could probably put somebody in a little lock. <laughs> there are some life skills. <laughs> Absolute life skills. So when when did you start wrestling? How old were you? Oh gosh, I think it was in second grade. Yeah. 
And, yeah, and tell we me were, about the second grader to the like middle schooler. What were you uh, like and what were you interested in outside of, um, of wrestling, I guess, in school? I think, you know, a typical kid, you know, you play every sport possible. I think I was, you know, pretty good in school. My parents, none of them went to college. And so I had an older brother that he was uh, five years ahead of me or four years ahead of me. And, and so watching him, he was a good athlete, but also knew that, you know, academics was important to get into colleges and universities. Like any other, you know, family, you always want your kids to do better than you did or yeah. have more resources. So yeah. I was blessed with that to be able to, I, I enjoyed school, grew up a little bit in parochial school for the first eight grades and then went into public school because of more opportunities and resources that were available and yeah. moving around, it was easier to, to get settled in. Yeah. So, well, yeah. I'm sure your extroversion served you well as a kid who has to get planted <laughs> into new environments, knowing nobody that can be challenging, right? Oh so, yeah. So um, what was your idea of success back then? Like in high school, were you like, if only I can see myself or were you not even thinking about it? I was one of those kids that probably didn't think about it. I used to, I was green with envy for people that says, well, I'm going to grow up and be a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, fill in the blanks. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, even today I, I think, well, what am I going to do when I grow up? Yeah. No, it's funny. I'm the same way. And I actually just saw my best friend um, who was literally valedictorian. And I'm like, what kind of fueled you literally or what inspired you? And yeah. she's like, I was so scared of not finding success. And I'm like, well, I wasn't even thinking about, I, I mean, I was just, I was kind of like, I'll figure yeah. it out as I go. Yeah. Um, and nowadays the pressure on kids is like, they're thinking about it when they're 10 years old. And I'm like, let's just be kids, right? Oh, I know. Just, just live life and just live. Yeah. life will take some courses. You know, I, one of my favorite lines is, you know, expect the unexpected. Yeah, because, absolutely. You know, no matter what you plan or what you think might happen, it's just, yeah, what's that saying? It's you're like, be while, while, you, while you're planning, God is laughing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where I read that, but I like that one. Uh, that's a good so, one. So tell me about, so U.S. Naval Academy, and then um, how did that experience shape you and transition you to potentially joining? Yeah, military? well, um, because at the Naval Academy, everybody has a commitment of five years after they graduate. Okay. So, you know, like everybody else, you just kind of go, oh, okay. And, uh, you know, you have you're allowed to pick a, a community and it's based on class standing. Uh, there were times that I thought, hey, I wanted to be what, a Marine. I wanted to be a pilot. My eyes went bad. I thought I wanted to be a SEAL. And because of my eyes, I thought, hey, you know, because many of the wrestlers went into that. And I ended up as a surface warfare officer, which is basically a ship driver. So I was on cruisers and destroyers and hydrofoils and had that opportunity. And, and uh, you know, it's just, kind of crazy and and each time you know like you said you you get an experience and they it's kind of a fun because every two to three years are like giving you a new job that yeah you so, so how does about. that work so it's a, as you said it's five years I clearly I don't know enough about this so you join the Naval Academy then you commit to five years and you is it a rotation like you get to sample like a residency and as a well, doctor the, like yeah, as a midshipman, you got the experience to sample all the different things. Some of your training throughout the summers, you would do some time on the submarines. You'd actually go up and they did put you in a trainer to fly. You, you know, were, were out on a surface ship and, and it was really a lot of fun. So, so you got an experience, a taste of all the different uh, wonderful 
warfare communities of the of the armed forces. Mm -hmm. But then when you when you sign up and you get commissioned, you know, I went off to school to learn about, you know, more intense of the operations and the mechanism and leadership and management I'd have as a surface warfare officer. And you start out at a low level with is, you know, probably about eight to 10, 12 people underneath you as a division officer. I was like the gunnery officer when I first reported to my first ship. And then I was the anti-submarine warfare officer, which was a different division. And then later as the combat direction center officer. And so through the first three years of that assignment, I had three different experiences. You attain your qualifications for your surface warfare. I had the luxury of two different deployments to the Mediterranean and the Middle East. And then uh, also had an industrial period where we were rebuilding some of the ship in the shipyard. Wow. And then it's just a progression. Then, you know, each one, each change in your position, you'd like to go up in uh, capabilities and capacities mm -hmm. and challenges. And so the next time you'd go to a school, a department head school, and then you had a bigger, you had the whole department, like an engineering department or a combat systems department. And then as you progressed, you got more experienced and qualified to be and screened uh, specifically to be the second in command of a ship and then the command of a ship. Wow. And so after the five-year period, what's the attrition rate typically? Like do people say, I love this and I'm continuing on? Are there people that, how many people kind of change their mind and decide to pursue a different direction? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, the attrition rate was probably around, um, I think, you know, when we looked at the curves, I think it was probably about uh, 60% probably decided this wasn't for them and, and moved on to a different career. Mm -hmm. Some people actually changed. There was an opportunity if you started out like as a surface warfare officer, but you thought, hey, later, I really would like to be an intelligence officer or an oceanographer or whatever. There was opportunities to what we call lateral transfer into another specialty, yeah. which was really kind of a lot of fun as well. Yeah. So, so what advice would you give someone who's considering joining the military? I'm sure you get asked this. Yeah, I think it's a great opportunity for all the services. And I was blessed later on in my career of leading joint task forces in war zones of all things and coalition partners. And it was really fun to see the, you know, obviously the experience, the leadership, the, the, you know, I, I was blessed with a, with a pretty good travel agent, <laughs> got to travel pretty good places. But the experience and the opportunities and the challenges that uh, that's afforded an mm -hmm. opportunity to serve your country, whether it's and for me, it's, you know, I'm a big person that, you know, not everybody belongs in the military. And so, you know, given service in some other regards, Peace Corps, whatever, to be able mm -hmm. to help out, I think is very important. And, and I think it's a it's an, a neat aspect for people to consider yeah. how they can contribute to the greater good and others. Yeah. And so you said you were like, got to travel some cool places. Where were your favorite spots <laughs> that you got to visit? Oh, goodness. Um, I've, I've, we had it where, you know, I was on the East Coast mainly to begin with in the, and then in the West Coast. But because of the Navy, we traveled to different things. So it was all over the Mediterranean. It was all around South America a couple of times. It was into the Middle East. It was in the Western Pacific. It was the Hawaiian Islands. It was Australia. You know, it's just, it's just kind of, lesson so I yeah. still love traveling and experience. Oh I'm sure and you're you're you've been married for a long time right? I, I was married and then um and 
unfortunately uh, divorced and then uh, divorced for some time and now remarried. And now remarried. And, uh, well, congrats yeah, on, on finding yeah. finding a beautiful bride again. But so how is that? Because I was thinking like, that's got to be a huge challenge for people, is spouses in the military. It is, you know, and that's probably one of the challenges and, and one of the challenges for for us in the Navy. But now most of the services are experiencing that because of deployments overseas that you would, you would miss key opportunities with your family. And, mm -hmm. and that was, you know. And just milestones. Yeah. Big, big moments. Yeah. In life. yeah, yeah I had, I had two children from a previous marriage and one's now in the Navy and one's actually a optometrist with the Veterans Administration. They but can you help you with that. your eyesight and my eyesight. <laughs> <laughs> my eyesight is going lately. You were saying oh, like not having good eyes. I'm like, I was always bragging. I'm like, I'm almost 50. I don't have glasses. And now I'm like, okay, wait, I take it back. It went like overnight. Anyway, uh, so um, I know that in my intro, I read a lot um, about Pakistan. How much time did you spend there? And that seems like it was a really pivotal part yep. of your um, experience. Yeah, it was. It was kind of an interesting time. You know, I, I probably wouldn't, you know, I could have found it on a map, but where my experience first started was here I was in charge of this uh, strike group. And so for an expeditionary strike group, it was uh, 5,500, uh, I'm sorry, I had a little blitz, um, 5,500 Marines and sailors, an air wing, probably six ships, a couple submarines. And, and had that capabilities. We just finished up a large exercise, the largest international exercise off the coast of Egypt, where I was the maritime commander for this big task force of, of, of multiple countries. As we were coming around, my Marines that were a part of my strike group were committed to go into Fallujah for the elections back in 2005 in Iraq. And at the same time, I was sailing through the Straits of Hormuz, the famous straits where the Iranians harassed the ships and so forth. And uh, it was a time when Pakistan experienced its earthquake in 2005. Yeah. 7.6 earthquake. Ugh. Amazing. 78,000 killed, 177,000 injured. Three and a half million people are homeless in the Himalayas, and winter was rapidly approaching. So here I am. So I, my favorite line, as I said earlier, is expect the unexpected. Here I was, you know, and the, this caption of, and I had this picture of me, you know, sitting up on my flagship as we're sailing through with my forces to ready to offload the Marines in, a, in Iraq. And, and I get this call that says, hey, pack your bags, you're headed to Pakistan, and we need you there now. And so within 48 hours, I'm sitting in the Himalayas, <laughs> 700 miles from saltwater as a Navy Admiral leading an earthquake response uh, task force. Oh my uh, so gosh. So I, you, so you led the whole U S relief, right? Yeah. yeah. Wow. It was fascinating. It was probably one of the most personal professionally rewarding experiences. You know, usually the military comes in, it's the nine one one force to be able to help. And so here's Pakistan helping a, a vital partner, strategic partner in their time of need. So I went in, did an assessment and we grew to about 1500 people on the ground I had Air Force on the, on the runways helping goods. I had over 30-some helicopters delivering supplies. I brought in two large, like a MASH hospital. In fact, you remember the show MASH, that the MASH, that unit was actually under my command and in the, in the areas up in, uh, you know, tribal areas of the, close to the Fatal and, and along the line of control. I had a Marine hospital in there, an Navy hospital, and, and other 
armed forces to be able to assist and, and to be able to care and be responsible for saving so many lives, working with international communities, working with the different coalition navies. And the, and the experience was to provide humanitarian relief, which was so powerful, and at the same time improve U.S.-Pakistan relations. And in wow. that, yeah, it was, it was a phenomenal experience that lasted about seven months that we were there through the winter time to take them through winter and, and the experience there. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was, again, like I said, one of the personal professional rewarding experiences. It, so it sounds like a, an incredible experience. As I'm listening to you, you know, you said relationships, relationships, relationships. And I am great at that. Like check that box. Like I'm great at relationships. I've got lots of them. I enjoy them, but I would not be successful at any of the things that you've done because I'm thinking about, a whole part of this is around organization and logistics. Like just even knowing how to get all of these moving parts to talk to one another and work and communicate. Like how did you even pull all of this together? I, um, I came in with a small staff and as we grew and got augmented by other commands throughout, but it wasn't part of the U.S. military and the scope and scale that the U.S. military can provide, when you think about it, here we had strategic sea lift that I was able to bring in equipment in the ports that was the bulldozers and cranes. It was the strategic airlift that brought in food supplies and relief efforts. And um, not only the equipment, they flew helicopters from around, the, you know, from the United States into Pakistan. Three days later, we built them up and they were flying relief efforts. Um, we would bring in relief supplies. We would bring in the components to build hospitals and, and support. And it was just, you know, you, you can't, can't understand how great and how wonderful it is that the U.S. has that such capability to provide that capacity where yeah. no one else can provide. Now, of course, you know, initially I relied on some of the forces there in Afghanistan. So if you can imagine the moment of these folks that uh, literally I had helicopters that had bullet holes in it that flew across the border, was working out of Islamabad at the time and, and some of our and some of the bases that the Pakistan military was so kindly allowed us to bed down in to be able to lift. And here they are one day in a war, the next day providing humanitarian relief and oh, yeah. exfilling patients to hospitals yeah. and medical units. And you talk about the rewarding experience for all the people that were yes. involved. Yes, and the bonding. I'm sure those relationships are so cemented and sealed in a shared experience. Yeah. Um, that's incredible. So is it also true, um, this was told to me, I didn't even know this part, but is it also true that you were crucial in the plot to get bin Laden? <laughs> I don't, I don't I'm know. I'm like, is this really, could this really be one person? <laughs> like, it's like, uh -huh. it's like your twins and your triplets. There's another... <laughs> Now, I, I don't know about that part, but um, what was funny is the experience during the earthquake. Yeah. I was wonderfully rewarded by President Musharraf then and General Musharraf, the highest award they've given a foreign military for the support that we gave Pakistan in their time of need. And so I left Pakistan after the earthquake uh, in April, I think, 2006, came back to Cal Coronado, California, where my strike group was. Um, and then was follow-on follow assignment to in charge of all Navy personnel, plans and policy, which was a fun job. But during that, it was a time when we were shifting our effort from Iraq to Afghanistan. Things were settling down in Iraq and, 
here we were in Afghanistan, landlocked. And so um, as the issue changed, the idea was in order to win in, in Afghanistan, we had to win in Pakistan because everything went through there. And so I was actually part of those relationships was they saw me as a valued partner and they knew what I was capable of or, or took time to understand their culture and right. understand the people. And so I was asked to come back to be the senior military representative for, for Pakistan in 2008. Thought it was a one-year assignment. And of course, three years later, after the bin Laden raid, I was, uh, I was allowed to come out. Yeah. Well, then, you, I mean, I would say you were crucial in that and that you were able to create, you know, a peaceful process between Pakistan and the and U.S. And, and all of the relations there. Yeah. Um, obviously, you're not the guy getting bin Laden, but, <laughs> but it's a, you don't hear about all of the different moving parts that go into that type of operation. And, what is it? You know, yeah. Yeah, one of the neat things, you know, of course, you you build in, and those relationships were so key with the counterterrorism, with the counterinsurgency. I would do deconfliction with the coalition forces along the Afghan border, Nafata, assisted Pakistan, and some other things in in that area. And then, you know, during the Bin Laden raid was was kind of interesting to be, you know, a, a, to be a part of that was just very humbling of, of what went on. And then afterwards, of course, here I am, I'm the senior rep. So I was the person that, uh, that shows the strength of a relationship that during that, initially Pakistan was like, wow, you know, kudos because you got bin Laden. But then the world like really changed on Pakistan. Like, wow, how could you have it? This, you know, how could you let this guy there? And so they felt very um, inundated and, and embarrassed by the events. And so it was very hard for them. And so for for several weeks, I was really one of the only persons that the Pakistan military would talk to, to be able to do some stuff and, and, and work through it until we got through that really tough time. But it showed the strength of a relationship to yeah. that strain and, and still to continue on. Yeah. So I am curious from a leadership perspective, and, and you talk a lot about the strength of relationships. I'm just super curious about your communication style. Like, how do you balance being the person that's like, we got this, guys, and I'm the motivator, and I'm the, the person who's going to inspire you, but also I'm the person who's going to be a good listener. And how do those two things intersect, whether you're in a time of crisis or whether you're in a time of peace? That's a great question. Because, you know, relationships is, I think, as a foundation, obviously. But how do you build your team? And I think it's that that mindset, how do you get your team? And so one of the key things I think was, particularly it showed during the earthquake and was and still is the hallmark of how a humanitarian assistance and disaster relief should be run. But one of the key things is, you know, it would have been easy for me, the kind of the, the military admiral, the, you know, the, or general, you know, all the toys, all the money, all the, all the neat stuff that really delivered the relief supplies and easily could it could have taken over and, and said, excuse me, I'm in charge. But what was really powerful was, and I think it's important, is to suspend that personal and organizational ego for the greater good for the mission. And the mission was about saving lives. So even though I was kind of the elephant in the room in the embassy as the, as the military guy with all this equipment, you know, the ambassador was a, a phenomenal ambassador, Ryan Crocker, led this great country team which is all the unique elements that you would see in, a, in an embassy of all the different powers and levers of the U.S. government 
working together to be able to provide that U.S. effort to provide support in a time of need. Mm-hmm. And, it was, and it was that key. And you can imagine that there were some egos in the room from the USAID that provides the disaster assistance relief from the State Department that I actually worked under because in those environments, they're the ones in charge. And building that close relationship was very important. Yeah. But it was also the mindset. We also have a thing in the military we call support it and supporting commanders. And so the idea that, hey, there's clearly someone that's going to be in charge and, and it might change through the evolution of the, uh, of the event. But for this time, it was the ambassador and the U.S. government was the supported commander. And so all of us, no matter what we had and maybe was the key elements, was you were there to support them and to be able to, to do that. Yeah. So setting those conditions with the clear mission and goals of what we wanted to do, that mindset of, hey, and everybody can contribute in this, sharing that information and that yeah. intent, what we call commander's intent, which is the guidance of what we want to have achieved, and then empowering people to do the job. And, and it, was, it was so rewarding to see that happen. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like you've gotten some really good kind of anchoring um, kind of not, not mantras, but like ways of thinking about leadership. And they they sound like there's a lot of clarity in kind of what the North Star is, you know, where, where are we going? And then also um, being open and, and nimble and flexible to expect the unexpected, like you talked about. Um, yeah. So given that we've talked a little bit about the earthquake and that being a moment, um, do you think that that time was something that made you the leader that you were or that... Um, that like your leadership is actually makes the time. Like, you know, that, that whole thing, like, do oh, you, yeah. Oh, this the is, times this make is, the leader or does the leader make the time? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. You know, I was, like I said, you know, part of being in the military, you, you're in a leadership position all the time, whether it's a small group, larger group or whatever. And you're, you're blessed with that opportunity to experience it, to have successes and setbacks and how do you learn from those? And then have great mentors along the way that really inspired you and taught you how to be a good leader. Mm-hmm. And, and it was funny because even some of the bad leaders, in some cases, I think <laughs> I used to joke is I think you learn more more about leadership. Yeah, by bad what leaders. not to do. It's like exactly. parenting, right? You're like, I'm not going to do that to my kids. Yeah, no, when it's I'm in true. charge. I'm, when I'm in charge. Yeah. yeah. So you you made this transition after 38 years of service into yeah. kind of the corporate world. What? What led to that decision and um, what has been the most satisfying thing and most challenging thing in making that type of change? Oh, wow. Well, at the 38 years, you know, it was a three starters, about 12 of us or so. And then five stars was only probably about four or five. And some of it's timing, some of it's luck. And it was, it was the right time. I had this incredible experience, this incredible time. And then, uh, you know, the last assignment there working as the director for the National Counterterrorism Center was fascinating to be involved with creating the policy for our country worldwide on counterterrorism and working with the White House and all the different entities within the, the whole of government and the intelligence community to solve this, this uh, tough issue of counterterrorism and terrorism and white supremacy and all the other things that we're experiencing. And so, you kind of go, wow, okay. And now it was, oh, okay, time to go, time to let somebody else have that experience, but also to use those experiences to be able to help others. Mm-hmm. And so my first foray was working with General Stan McChrystal, who I worked with at the Joint Special Operations Command. Stan 
was, it was great. And he was over in Afghanistan as well when I was in Pakistan. So we had this leadership company. We would help the Fortune 50 companies on leadership and, and learning about some of the things that we used in, the, in, in war fighting or in special operations to be able to, to do leadership and sharing those, those times. At the same time, I also was a, a mentor for back to the joint staff and helped brand new one-star admirals and generals in a capstone course and senior enlisted that we had in a keystone course. And I actually went out on exercises to share what I experienced and, and how to lead uh, disparate, disparate formations around the world to achieve missions and goals. And so I really felt, you know, because of the experiences, it was something to give back. And yeah. so, um, so when and, I- And how, I, how do you like it? I mean, how are you liking it? And, and also, I mean, I love that I've met you through, uh, through friends in Seattle and, yeah. and through Concentric Advisors where you are now. Like, how would you, um, how would you overall classify, like, I'm, I'm liking this period of time in my life? Yeah, I would say I, I'm really having a lot of fun. And, and I think what, what excites me, you know, what fuels, what fuels me mm -hmm. is, is, the, is the opportunity to work with great people, the opportunity to lead and to share some experiences and to continue to learn. And, and in this, in Concentric and in some of the other places, it was contributing also to some of the national security because it was a passion that, that I had to be able to be a part of it. Yeah. I still am a part of some of the U.S. delegations that work with other countries when we have these track through dialogues. But um, well, yeah, because you're going to be able to bring yeah a tremendous uh, perspective. And so tell tell our listeners what Concentric Advisors does. I know I said it in the intro, but like yeah. the cocktail party, like hey, this is where I work. <laughs> <laughs> this is where I work. We're a risk consultancy that does global security, and we. Uh, we have this uh, really unique background of, of personnel, small company, but, but growing, that supports large industries, corporations, high net worth individuals. And we give it a holistic perspective of how we look at their challenges of risk, both physical and virtual and cyber security, as well as now, which is really kind of an important one, is what's their persona and what's their image online and social oh, yeah. and so forth. That is huge right now. And it's, uh, it's amazing, as we know, what you can find in what we would call digital dust on the internet. Yeah. And, and now, and, and unfortunately, with the polarization of our country right now, there are some that will use that for nefarious reasons. Find yeah. out information and allow people that don't appreciate your point of view and want to do doxing or boxing or reveal to people on the dark web or deep dark web private information about you that can make your life experience a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. So give me an example of like, I'm sure you get asked all sorts of questions like at the cocktail party or at the, wherever you are, um, of people who are like, Ooh, give me the inside scoop just to, to me as a friend, like, what do I need to do to protect myself and stay, stay safe? Yeah. I think part of it was, um, that, that would be a good one. And, you know, I think some of us, you know, as you know, some of the other folks there from their experiences, but from my experiences of where I served, you know, you, you get an awareness. Mm -hmm. And so what I would tell people is, is that awareness uh, to know that there are many things out there and the second and third order effects of things that can affect you. But to take a look holistically, how are you, being sh how are you showing up on the, online or on the internet? 
but also about your about your spaces, your home, your businesses, and so forth. And more importantly, also nowadays is in the cyber world. And having that approach to see, and, and we'd like to do, a, I'm not a big one, you know, <laughs> when we travel around in theater with these big caravans, or it was kind of like, ooh, this was not good. It was like, okay, who are these? And somebody's important coming down the line. And so we used, we try to use a softer touch, but if we want, you know, there are times that you want to be more out, outwardly facing that you have a, have a security or security detail or whatever. Yeah. But it is the idea of just cleaning up your online persona to be able to protect you and then give you the sense of security and awareness for your family and loved ones. Yeah. And, for and so business. this isn't just the high profile, high net worth individuals or the celebrities. It's, it's really, this is for everyone. Yeah, it is. It really is. And what we're finding out initially, we started it out with, you know, the, the real high net worth, you know, they're, they're obviously the, the folks that have, you know, the big signs, the Bezos, the Gates, the, you know, the jobs, fill in the blanks. But what we're finding out now in today's environment, that if you're associated with a particular company or to a particular brand, that C-suite and now many of the other people are involved are also considered potential targets for mm. people's of opportunity because you are obviously wearing that brand of whatever, fill in the blanks, Twitter, Airbnb, Amazon, Google, Starbucks, the, whatever. Yeah, the, the, the overall values of that company or how they may have pivoted into, you know, making the wrong choices for the consumer that now make you look like you're some sort of, yeah, like a Facebook person could be a target, I would imagine at a high level. And so how do you look at risk, given that risk is your product? (laughs) Like, (laughs) you know, your product is risk, you're you're trying to assess and and, um, protect people from risk. Yeah. So our, our, our our mission statement is we manage risks everywhere to keep people safe. And so in that, what we look at is, okay, what are those key factors that you can, that we can manage for you that, that allows you the ability to live your life that you want, but at the same time, be aware of the, of the exposure that you might have as well. Mm-hmm. And so what are some crazy, I know you can't get into details because you've got all <laughs> sorts of, you know, NDAs and these are your clients, but what are some examples of crazy requests you may or may not get? Um, Usually it's a kind of an awareness of uh, things that are going on in the, in the dark web or the deep dark web, uh, where these um, areas that is really hateful speech and very insightful speech or an, an awareness or an opportunity or forming these folks that now have a voice, the QAnon, the anti-vaxxers, the conspiracy theories and others that are really out there um, causing people to rally around a cause that may or may not be, you know, sound in any way, but yeah. it does put you at risk because of that. So, yeah. you know, you'll have people that'll go, hey, you know, you know, we saw some of the crazy stuff with the, with the Gates and vaccines in Nigeria. Here he is supporting, you know, World Health Organization to eradicate polio, and yet somebody's talking about, you know, the craziness of what it what it does and we you know we experience that in some of the operation you know in the fata and others but um but for some of our clients it's just that uh, that awareness that hey this is going on and so you need to be aware that that's happening mm-hmm. we will actually we also actually do background and security checks on folks that are working with them to make sure they're they're have the right folks in their their unit we also have a 
persons of interest that some people may express um, that show uh, a particular interest in an individual and we find out that they may have a criminal record and they're stalkers on the, on the web or even in person to be able to take a look at. We yeah. have a 24-7 ops center that kind of kind of keeps tracks of things. We have a, pr a program where we'll put a on a on an app or concentric app that gives you your geolocation and we geofence it and we look at all the activities that are going around you to be able to alert you to potential uh, activities that you want to be aware of not go downtown or go this direction or there's a something that occurs there's about to be a protest down here or there's going to be a, yeah, yeah that exactly. makes sense that totally makes yeah. sense and so um, I'm sure because now we all have access to data and we can look at it uh, frequently that you guys assess all sorts of data. Um, but are you looking at percentages of requests? I guess like, um, how do I ask this? Like what threat is most commonly a concern for people? Because they may or may not be thinking about the deep dark web and then you're like, hey, wait, this is also something. But when they're coming to you originally, is it usually a physical threat? And then you're also saying, hey, part of our service is you also should be, should be looking at this. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. We started, um, you know, kind of noticing and, and we had a kind of a, with the COVID, the economic impacts and the medical impacts of the, of the pandemic. And then this, this seemingly unrest and then the elections that, you know, we're still going through that unsettlement uncertainty caused, uh, you know, quite a people distress of kind of what may happen and the idea of the white supremacist conspiracy theories and some of these groups that were out there. And so the awareness was, is that, hey, you know, you may want to look at this and, and we'll help you decide of whether or not you're at a vulnerability or at risk. Mm -hmm. And then so we'll take a look at, you know, what they have. And so, in fact, during this time of the pre-election trans voting and now the post-elections, we've had quite a bit of um, support going out for people, both physical, cyber, and the uh, intelligence products alerting them to potential activities that may mm -hmm. be harmful to their business or to the locations or cities. And, you know, and again, people online finding out that, oh, Shauna, you donated to this candidate. We don't like that. Yeah. Candidate. Well, so yeah. I'm, I'm not just thinking about it. Sometimes I think about it, you know, as a Jewish person, sometimes I think about like the rise of anti-Semitism exactly. and I get super scared. Um, and then I'm like, well, wait, do I make it public that I want to, there's this fine line of like being proud and wanting to, yes. to, um, I mean, it's just the twilight zone to me that that could even happen or exist. Cause I've always lived in, uh, yeah. on the coasts, you know, where yeah. it's like strong, stronger and bigger Jewish communities. But sometimes yeah. I'm like, well, maybe I shouldn't have anywhere something trackable that I'm donating to some sort of Jewish cause because yeah. what if somebody's a Jewish hater? I, it just it, makes me scared. Um, but how, how much of that is, um, I guess, how do you discern as a, just an average citizen what's fake news and what's real as far as racism? And mm -hmm. like, you know, so many people said um, right now there's more hate in the world than ever before in our country. But is that true or is that just social media or just kind of people having a political angle to try to make that be the case? Yeah. I, it's hard to know really where the hate or racism stuff is really exists or doesn't. Yeah, I, I think it, in my view, I think it's, it's gotten worse from the standpoint, maybe it's because it's, 
because of social media that you're you're more aware of it or it's allowed to spread instantaneously to large populations where before you i don't think we had that ability to disperse that information so rapidly mm. so i think we do we're well i think we're in an unusual state of this polarization and then this disinformation and misinformation where people get their news or where people validate their facts. Mm -hmm. And so it is a scary one. It's a lot bigger than a kind of a, a, but it is something to be aware of that there are many people that consume all their info through a certain source that may be right. biased or- Absolutely. And, and so you, then you, you're not sure, you know, one of the things we dealt with even at the counterterrorism center was, you know, kind of the homegrown violent extremists mm. and, and the folks that were online you know, where they would foment the information and, and try to indoctrinate them online and get the vulnerable, now, young, yeah, someone looking now, for it. Yeah, it's so much out there that now it kind of goes, okay, what is that? And, and that, that I think is the worrisome part of, you know, the kind of the white supremacist movement. You know, in my words, I kind of said, hey, I think we, the genie got out of the bottle on this one. We've mm -hmm. allowed them to have a voice where they were, were kind of like, okay, this was a, you know, a, kind of an extreme group on the side. Now it's almost mainstream because they've gotten the attention, uh, unfortunate with you know some of the, the things that we're seeing in the news that it's almost endorsing their activities is, is, is pretty scary. And it's kind of like, okay, now it's just, okay, knowing that and having that awareness is what we try to do and try to educate people and try to make them aware of where their threshold is because risk is also personal as well. Some people do better. Everybody follows kind of a spectrum of kind of where they where their tolerance level is, but mm. they also need awareness. And sometimes when we do the research for them and do the background checks or see what's out there, we'll actually do surveys to see people where they are online and so forth to be able to present that with them and says, okay, here's where you are. Here's where we think that's a problem. But, you know, there's also a risk calculus for yourself that yeah. what makes you comfortable or what makes you feel safe about what to do. Yeah. Well, it's great that a company like yours exists. I love that you're leading the charge at Concentric. It's a really cool company, great culture. Um, and, I, and it sounds like you're having a ton of fun. How does, um, how, how I guess does Mike, the, the leader and the, um, you know, the military guy, the Concentric advisor, CEO, uh, differ from Mike, the grandpa, <laughs> dad, you know, what kind of advice are you giving your own family as far yeah. as the intersection of what you do and, and being a family guy? I would like to think that they're pretty, pretty close because that, that's who I am as a person about, you know, kind of the, the love of life, the excitement of, of the, of the moment to be involved, to have impact, to have leadership and the influence and to uh, be able to take care of people and build people and, and build the team, build an environment for high performance for others to, to succeed and excel and, and have that opportunity. And so I, I'd like to think that those, those two are the same, that, you know, granddad can, uh, is just as fun loving and, but, but also, you know, a character to be able to support, encourage and, and have, uh, right. You know, those people thrive and succeed as well. Well, I mean, even more specifically on like from a logistics standpoint, like, you know, uh, I guess how, how protected are your grandkids online and how, you know, how much is that like parlaying into 
Oh, okay. got it. I've got so yeah. much information. I mean, I think you, the person, that is a, a really good way of saying it, that you're kind of like, I'm, I'm the same guy and I'm the same way too. I, I don't really know how to be two different yeah. uh, people, but some people are like so serious at work and then silly <laughs> at home. I'm like, why not just blend it? It's too, yeah, exactly. It seems exhausting to try to be uh, multiple different, different types of identities. But I'm more saying like logistically, you know, you, yeah. the, the, the camera's all over the house and locked down on the, on the technology and password protected everything like or or are you not living what you're giving advice to yeah no i think we're living it you know because there are so some simple things that you can do to really uh you know encourage or protect you two-factor authentication you know what you are how do you how are you showing up online how are you what's your lifestyle what are you doing that to, to be impact that so yeah, so um, um, you know, one lucky one of my my son and his wife and their granddaughter are in the navy, and so they're overseas right now in Portugal, and and that awareness. My daughter is an optometrist with the Veterans Administration with two kids down in California, but yeah, imparting them the awareness, the situational mm -hmm. awareness, and the threats that are out there, and how do they tolerate that, and have a discussion with them about, you know what they're doing and how they're behaving and, and also things that they should implement around to protect themselves, yeah. protect their children and, and the way they are. And some of it are getting it from the work that they get, but it is always good to say, Hey, these are the trends we're seeing. You know, you should yeah. think about this, you know, more of a, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's like, Oh, it's good to have a doctor in the family. I'm like, this is like, it's good to have like, Someone's like super knowledgeable on national security uh, in the family, like a hundred percent. So are there routines or rituals that you, uh, that you take on every day or every week that set you up for success? Um, I call it my mental health break every morning. I'm, I'm a morning person. So I get up and I try to get a workout in my wife and I either will hit the CrossFit gym or we have some Pelotons in the house that we'll hop on and work out. And for nice. me, that's I'll follow health. you. I love my Peloton. I know. We'll have to get that. I'll get your name. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll follow you. All right. Cool. And then, uh, and so it's, for me, it's a mental health break that kind of set up the morning and then, um, you know, all in and kind of go after it and, and have that environment, you know, and today's yeah. in the environment, I was lucky enough in some of my commands, I had forces all over the world. And so you got used to working on a kind of a VTC. We mm. had a secure video teleconferencing to be able to share that information and get get reports. And so I've incorporated a lot of that kind of, we call it an operating rhythm at work that when do we check in? How do we check in on each other? How do we support? What kind of updates? How do we empower people? How do we communicate? So it's, it's kind of a lot of fun. But yeah. yeah, the routine for me is just kind of a, you know, hey, good night's sleep, get, get a good workout in, you know, yeah. tackle these, work. These, these things are not so complicated. I mean, it always comes down to, you know, what you put in your body and exercise and sleep. Those are probably the top three, at least for me to try to. And then if I'm like extra good, I'm like trying to meditate or I mean, that's like an extra like little cherry on top or, um, yeah. you know, detach from my iPhone or whatever it is. But, but if you can get those basics, you're setting yourself up for huge success. That's awesome. And so my ultimate question for you, Mike, is what fuels you? Wow. Um, I guess the experience of life, because uh, you embrace it. Yeah. It's, um, 
it gives you an opportunity to, it challenges you, it inspires you, it motivates you, it, it deals you challenges to deal with. There's a little bit of chaos, there's a little bit of ambiguity, there's some uncertainty, but at the end of the day, you know, kind of what's, what's true to you and what do you want to accomplish and, and uh, how do you tackle it and how do you uh, face some of the adversity and setbacks and how do you get up and move forward and how do you kind of keep striving because today's, today's activities are good, but you need to constantly improve on that. And so, you know, kind of this high performance mentality to be able to go after it and, and always uh, attempt to do, because there's always something you can do better yeah. or whatever, and you keep challenging yourself and keep living life to its fullest because there's so yeah. much greatness out there and so much greatness in people to be able to uh, take on the challenges and solve the problems. I agree. I yeah. love your attitude. It's so contagious yeah. and so inspiring. And I'm so glad that you were on the podcast. Thanks really, so much. Really, really, really appreciate it. Fun to get to know you better. Yeah. And I hope to see you in person soon. But in the cool. meantime, I'm sending you a big uh, virtual hug. Excellent. And, and be safe and we will talk very soon. Thanks so much. Back at you. This has been wonderful. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. 